Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's Safety and Health webcast, Electrical Safety Compliance 2018 NFPA 70E Updates, and what you need to know. Sponsored by Honeywell Salisbury. This is Alan Ferguson, Associate Editor at Safety and Health Magazine, and I will moderate today's session. Thank you all for joining us. We'll start the presentation in a few minutes, but first I want to go over some preliminary items. The views of today's speaker and organizations are their own and do not necessarily reflect those in the National Safety Council or Safety and Health Magazine. Any mention of a commercial enterprise, product, or publication does not mean the Council or Magazine endorses those items. At the end of today's webcast, we will conduct a question and answer session. To ask a question, simply type it in the text box in the lower left-hand corner of your screen and click the button for Submit Question. Feel free to ask your question at any time during the presentation. You don't have to wait for the question and answer session to begin. I will try to answer as many questions as possible, but because of the large number of participants today, we might not get to every question. Any unanswered questions will be forwarded to today's speaker. For basic troubleshooting information, click the Help button located on your screen. At the end of the webcast, you'll be asked to complete a brief evaluation survey. And I'll let you know more about that after the presentation. Today's webcast is archived, so you can access it after the live event. To view this webcast and all of our past webcasts, go to safetyandhealthmagazine.com slash events. With that, let's go ahead and get started. Our speaker today is Brian McCauley, the business leader for Salisbury Assessment Solutions, a division of Honeywell Industrial Safety. In his role, Brian helps customers find solutions to NSPA 70E compliance and their electrical safety needs. He has presented to numerous Fortune 500 companies and has spoken at conferences such as the NSC Congress and Expo. McCauley is also an active member of the Utility Supply Management Alliance, where he's currently serving as president. Brian, whenever you're ready, go ahead and take it away. Great. Well, thank you so much, Alan, for that uh, nice introduction. So. Good morning to the folks out west and uh, good afternoon to the folks out east. Thank you guys so much for um, making this part of your day. Um, as Alan mentioned, we will be uh, asking or, or handling questions as they come in, so feel free to send questions over. Um, and at the very end, Alan will moderate some of those questions for us. If we're unable to get to your question, do not worry about it. Um, Jose De La Massa is uh, our business development manager, and he's in the background kind of prioritizing and assisting with, uh, with the questions. And as those come through, Jose, myself, and the team will be sure to follow up on any questions that we uh, aren't able to get to today. So just because you send a question in and we don't get to it, uh, we will be in touch um, to hopefully assist you with uh, the correct answer. So without further ado, we can go ahead and get started here. Um, what I'll be covering today is uh, just over, overall electrical safety basics, um, some things that we need to know within our plants, our facilities, our, uh, our buildings, electrical safety statistics, you know, what's going on out there? Where are we today um, in regards to this electrical safety topic, and how are we progressing? Um, NFPA 70 2018, obviously that will be a big part of the um, presentation here that I'll get through about the middle part, where we'll cover some of the updates that we'll see uh, versus where we were in 2015 to where we are today. Then I'm going to talk a little bit about personal protective equipment, maybe some uh, innovation that we've seen just recently that's been out. And as I said, we'll, uh, we'll get to questions. Um, so I usually like to start out with a little bit of history on electrical safety or just electricity for, for that. Um, so, so you can see here, and, and we all are familiar with our, our good friend Ben Franklin back in 1747. He really was uh, uh, instrumental in driving some of the first experiments that we uh, saw with electricity. Um, in 1880, uh, our friend uh, Edison came out with a light bulb, which really changed uh, the entire world, for that matter. And then it was in the early 1900s that Sam Insel developed what we really see today as still the modern power grid. So that's been around for, you know, 100, 100 plus years. Um, and, and obviously, we've seen it grow across the country at a pretty heavy rate. Um, but interestingly enough, if we look at the entire world, there's still 16% of the population that do not have electricity today. So we still have a little bit of work to do in those areas, that's for sure. Um, I always like to talk a little bit about Salisbury. I promise this is the only slide I have, but it's an interesting history if you, if you take a look at how Salisbury came to be. Um, we had a store, a general store in 1855 is when we started business, and that general store was based in Chicago. 
And uh, pretty cool. We had a general manager at one time that had a catalog uh, that dated back to the late 1800s, and it was charred by that 1900s uh, Great Chicago Fire. So it's amazing some of the history and some of the things that uh, this company has seen over the 160 years or so. But what ended up happening was ComEd, who's the uh, utility based in Chicago, approached Salisbury and said, hey, I know you have some rubber expertise. We're having some issues with the linemen that climbed to the top of the poles and, you know, they're getting shocked or even worse, electrocuted. So, you know, what can we do to, to kind of help these guys and, and, and eliminate some of that shock hazard? So we worked closely with them, taking um, really at the end of the day what was a garden hose um, and, and making that into what we see today as, as rubber line hose. And we we're putting that over the lines to protect the linemen as they climb to the top. So if they did happen to abrase themselves against live wires, uh, they wouldn't have the shock potential there. And believe it or not, if you drive down the street today and you see those bucket trucks parked, you'll see all that orange gear up in the lines, and that's uh, all made out of our Chicago warehouse. Um, much later, obviously, in 2001 is really when the arc flash line was developed, and um, we, we just uh, have seen a lot of change in the industry um, over the last few decades. So another example of that change, if you look at uh, this next slide here, this is a, a copy of the American Electrician's Handbook, and it was... Uh, printed in 1942, and I'm sure you guys are all wondering, why in the world are you showing me something from 1942? I need to know what's going on in 2017, right? But it's a great example of showing how, how far this industry has come. So unless you guys are pilots and flying airplanes, let me uh, enlarge that for you so you can see it a little better. Um, section 90, electricians often test circuits for the presence of voltage by touching the conductors with the fingers. You got to be kidding me, right? Um, this method is safe or the voltage does not exceed 250 volts and is often very inconvenient for locating a blown-out fuse or for ascertaining whether or not a uh, circuit is still alive. Um, I can think of better ways to find out if that circuit is alive, that's for sure. Now, here's the part that gives me. Some men can endure the electric shock that results without discomfort, whereas others cannot. So I guess at this point, if you're following this American Electrician's Handbook and you're in major pain, which I'm imagining you are, might be a great time for a career change. Um, now, it gets better. Section 91, the presence of old voltage can be determined by tasting. And, yes, I did say tasting. Um, the method is, is feasible only where the pressure is but a few volts. Hopefully that's the case, right? Um, where the voltage is very low, the bearings into the conductors constituting the two sides of the circuit are held a short distance apart on the tongue. Don't you love how it gives you the detail of exactly how to, how to conduct this? If, uh, if voltage is present, a mildly burning sensation results, which will never be forgotten after one has experienced it. So we have definitely come a long, long way um, in regard to electrical safety. And if we, if we look at the next slide here, we see you know, where we are today. The American Electrician's Handbook, this is the latest and greatest. Um, this, you know, and then we've got PPE that you can see there on the right side with insulated rubber gloves, you know, worn with voltage are uh, worn with uh, leather protectors. You can see the face shields and the arc flash personal protective equipment, the balaclava. So, you know, we, we obviously have much safer practices today. And the reason for that is because we want to make sure um, that our folks that work for us are coming in at 8 o'clock and leaving at 5 o'clock just as they came in, right? That's, that's our number one priority. All right, so, so what are the electrical hazards? I mean, to keep it simple, there's three. Um, first is electrical shock, and if you're like me, you unfortunately put your knife into that toaster to try to get that toast out and, and felt a little bit of a shock. Um, so, you know, that's, that's really when the current enters and exits the body, creating that path. Secondly, you've got arc flash, and I think by now everybody knows, you know, what arc flash really is. You know, I've been doing this almost 15 years, and at one time uh, people were still learning, being educated on what arc flash was. Um, but there's a perfect example of the arc flash taking place, and you have an electrician that's there in that image, that's being absorbed by that arc flash, and he is in a typical position that an electrician could be in. So very, very much uh, a hazardous condition that we want to do whatever we can to eliminate, and if uh, we can't eliminate, we just make sure these folks are wearing the proper PPE, right? Um, and then finally, you have the arc blast, which is the pressure wave. So you've got the arc flash, which is more or less the fire, but the arc blast is really that pressure wave that's built up with that conducting material and flying molten material, um, so, so a little bit more on the arc blast. Believe it or not, it can create a blast in excess of 2,000 pounds per square foot. So there's been studies, investigations that have been done, and they'll go into these rooms where the electrical gear might be, 
But if they look at the wall, you know, on the adjacent side of the room, you know, sometimes it's documented in these reports that a human body imprint was found in the wall. So, so much force moved that individual away from the equipment and slammed them right into the wall in the back of the room. So we're talking about a lot of energy coming out of, of the arc flash causing this arc blast. Um, the other side of the, uh, that we have here is that it can contain collateral damage, extreme personal damage. So, so with that, you have exploding switch gear. You've got molten metal coming at you at extreme high velocities. Um, so, so a lot of issues can, can come from the actual arc blast. And I'll share a story of a customer that we had up in the Northeast. Of course, I'll never share customer names, but this customer was working on a 53-cal piece of equipment, and they were wearing a, a Salisbury 55-cal suit. Um, and I'll, I'll skip the details, but the arc flash took place, and the individual walked away from that I incident uh, with a second-degree burn, meaning that the suit did exactly what it was intended to do. The suits that we manufacture, they are tested um, so that the wearer will not receive higher than a second-degree burn if an instance like that was to happen. So, again, the 55-cal suit, you could argue, saved his life. However, there was an arc blast component, and he was very, very lucky. What happened was a piece of shrapnel flew off of the equipment at a very high velocity and literally sliced his face shield from the top right to the bottom left. Now, had that been, you know, two degrees to the left, it would have been a blunt hit to his head, could have been fatal. So, you know, very, very fortunate at the end of the day that this individual is able to walk away with a second-degree burn. So a lot of questions that I get, you know, working with a lot of customers throughout the world is, you know, what causes an arc flash? Um, and at the end of the day, it's really when that path of electricity gets interrupted. So, you know, what can we be doing within our facilities, our universities, our plants, our hospitals to prevent these arc flashes from taking place? Um, well, first and foremost, we want to make sure that we're maintaining our equipment. This is, this is key. Um, we were at a customer's facility not long ago, opened up a panel, and there was literally six inches of dust from the bottom coming up to the top of the equipment. Um, and, and this is on the floor, of course. And the engineer that was on site closed the door back and said, hey, this, guys, this really needs to be addressed, and it needs to be addressed immediately. I mean, this is a major, major concern. So they kind of walked them through some of the issues and concerns, and within a matter of weeks, that customer was able to address that, kind of clean up their electrical system, that type of thing, and we were able to go back in and complete the job. But if you're not maintaining your equipment, that type of thing, it can really lead to uh, breakdown or failure. Um, secondly is, is current overload. So we're all being pushed, right, by upper management, by executives, by corporate to drive more production, right? I mean, that's, that's a common theme, it seems like. Um, so let's make sure that we're not ever putting too much on one piece of equipment. Equipment is designated uh, to, to hold a certain type of certain load, and, and let's not ever, you know, put too much on that equipment because that could obviously cause an overload, and then that could be an arc flash. But maybe the one that we need to be most cautious about is, is from a safety perspective, and that's accidental contact. And I feel like, I feel very confident that this is the one that we can really tackle and address um, in the facilities. So, so training and things like that can really help. And a couple of examples I'll share, um, and I do these presentations all over the country, so I share these examples a lot. But, you know, first, first we'll start out with, with an individual, we'll call him Joe Blow. So Joe had, you know, the, the keychain that you know, hung down to the side of his hip that allowed him to actually enter all the doors and exit all the doors without ever having to remove a key uh, from his waist. So smart idea if you think about it. But unfortunately for Joe, what happened was he was standing a little bit too close to some electrical gear that was being worked on. So the equipment was exposed, and Joe's always in need. So someone from across the plant said, hey, Joe. So Joe turned around, and you already know what happened, right? The momentum of that turn moved the keychain right into the equipment and made contact, and Boom, Joe Blow was on fire from head to toe. Now, we're taught when we're small in elementary school, stop, drop, and roll. You know, that'll put the fires out, put the fire out. But once you have an arc flash that starts, the energy is so high that stopping and dropping and rolling will help, but it won't extinguish it quickly enough to eliminate those third-degree burns or maybe even worse. So Joe ended up um, with, with some major injuries off of, that, off of that incident. Now, that customer had not done an arc flash study, um, so he didn't know exactly what the boundaries were, meaning when do I need to gear up, you know, at what point, and he didn't know what PPE he needed to wear, which would have been part of the arc flash study. So, um, and that's one example. Another example is uh, there was an electrician working uh, shift one, 
and this would have been on a Friday, and doing some, some live work, but was able to finish before, you know, the shift ended. And he was probably thinking about, you know, dinner with the family. Hey, we're headed to Chile. This is going to be a great night, margaritas, that type of thing. Um, and maybe wasn't thinking too much about uh, leaving the facility the way he maybe should have. So what happened was the second shift um, electrician or maintenance person came in and thought, well, hell, heck, I'll help, I'll help out the uh, individual from the first shift and kind of, you know, help him out. Maybe he'll help me out next week. So he ended up opening up the cabinet to try to complete the job. And as he did that, the vibration of that door was enough to cause the screwdriver that the individual from shift number one had left at the very top on the edge. And that screwdriver fell and went bing, bang, bam. Arc flash took place. Now you have another individual on fire from head to toe. So, again, these things, I think, with training and education within, you know, our, our workforce, within our facilities, will really help eliminate a lot of these issues that we see out in the field. Not going to spend too much time on, on this because I want to make sure we do leave enough time for questions towards the end, but I think a lot of people have seen these stats. 80% um, of all injuries or burns that result from arc flash and ignition of flammable clothing, meaning that the majority of these issues happen when people are not wearing the proper PPE, which means it's more, even more important to do that arc flash study, right? Uh, 1.2 cal equates to a second-degree burn, so keep, keep that one in mind as we get to the NFPA 70 2018 updates. That's important. Um, I think we've all seen this. Arc temperature can reach 35,000 degrees, four times hotter than the surface of the sun. But the one at the bottom is the one I want to hammer home. Um, as I said earlier, we want to make sure that our folks come into the facilities at 8 o'clock and they leave at 5 o'clock the same way they, they came in. Safety is our number one priority, right? But, but there's also a cost when something like an arc flash takes place. Um, you know, and first and foremost, I know a lot of the folks that have been through arc flash, um, arc flash, you know, situations before, they've been through burn centers, and, and hearing their stories, they're nothing short of heroes to me. Um, they are incredible individuals who have really accomplished quite a, quite a battle. Um, so my heart goes out to a lot of them and a lot of their stories, and a lot of folks on the phone may have been through something like that or know some folks who've been through something like that. So obviously the safety of our folks is number one. But secondly, there is that cost component. Um, so once you're put into a burn center from an arc flash, the average that you're in that burn center is 27 days. And if you look at the statistic there, it's $10,000 a day to keep someone in a burn center. You start doing the math. The second that a burn or a second an arc flash takes place, you're likely going to see $270,000 hit your bottom line. Now, sure, we all have health insurance or not health insurance, but insurance and things like that. But that doesn't always help with the loss of production, the equipment damage. Um, don't forget about uh, you know litigation when you know Miss Jones doesn't have Mr. Jones coming back home the way that he left. So a lot of things can really add up and affect the bottom line at the end of the day when these incidents happen. And I do have a case study that I'll share with you in just a bit that kind of breaks down the numbers a little more. Um, I'm not going to go through all of these because you may have seen these in the past, but 97% of electricians have been shocked or injured on the job. I do this presentation all over the world or a lot of presentations all over the world, and I feel good thinking there's 3% out there. But a couple of times I've been packing up my stuff and leaving the room and kind of saying bye to everyone, and someone will tap me on the shoulder and say, I'd like to meet that 3%. In other words, he's challenging that, that that is even true. So, you know, I always feel good about the three, and then I'm like, oh, great, my stomach just turned, because maybe it's not 97. Maybe it's even higher. Um, so something to think about there. Every 30 minutes during the workday, a worker suffers an electrically induced injury that requires time off the job for recovery. Um, and then if you skip down to the second from bottom, medical costs for severe electrical burns can exceed $4 million per person. Now, you can easily come up with that number. You know, it was 270000 just to have someone in the burn center for that first 27 days. But don't forget, that doesn't include all the other things that go with it, which is the surgeries, which is the skin grafts, which is the therapy, um, and, and tons more that goes in it. And, and it's not like the individual will be better in a month. I mean, this is years and years and years for a recovery effort. Okay, so... I wanted to change gears a little bit and swing a little more into compliance. Um, so, you know, there's, there's certain industry standards and regulations that we probably need to know about in our facilities when it comes to electrical safety. 
you know, we have our friends at OSHA, and really that's OSHA 29 CFR 1910, subpart S, then you've got the NEC, but then you also have the NFPA 70E. Now, we're really effective as of now for the 2018 edition. Since this was printed, and uh, it was pretty much printed last month, so hopefully everybody has a, the copy, and, and hopefully we're underway kind of implementing it within our facilities. Um, but again, we'll talk about some of those changes just in a bit. And then you have various ASTM requirements, and there's tons more, IEEE 1584, there's others, but um, these, are, these are probably the ones that we need to be most familiar with. Um, when it comes to ASTM, just as an FYI, it's more or less focused around product. Um, the other ones can be really more or less focused around the way we work and our practices and things like that. So I, I threw this up here just because I've had it in for a bit. Um, you know, NFPA 70, the release for 18, was actually delayed for a bit, but everything is out and it is official as now. So you can see the PDF was actually released in September. The actual book, and if you like the hard copy, that was released in October. And then the ebook was actually uh, released in late November. So we are good to go at this point in regards to uh, getting yourself a copy of that. So if, you, if you'd like to know where to get a copy, just you can go to nfpa.org, um, and you can order them from that website if you'd like. And I know a lot of uh, our partners actually sell them as well. All right, so a little bit of history on NFPA 70 and how we even got to where we are today. As you can see at the bottom, this uh, 2018 revision it is the 11th revision since 1979. So the committee's been very, very busy, um, and we have someone that sits on the committee from, uh, from our business, so they get you know firsthand look at some of the changes that are coming our way, and they obviously get to play a role in, in driving some of the updates, that type of thing. But you know, really prior to 1982, shock was always the main risk, right? But, it, but in the 80s, it, that really began to change as people realized how hazardous our clash could be. So it was about 1990 that the threat of arc flash was well established. OSHA came in, made some changes, and then NFPA 78 came in and made some changes. And, and we've really seen over the last, I can't believe it's been almost 30 years, we've really seen arc flash take off. Um, so as we get into the NFPA 70E changes, the first thing I would like to do is just talk about some of the changes to terms, because in regards to the terminology, um, I'd like to use the 2018 terminology, and if I'm using that, It'll help to kind of understand how it's changed since 2015's version. So you can see some of the items on here. Accidents have been replaced with incident. Accidental and accidentally have been replaced with unintentional and unintentionally. So you have some of that going on. Um, qualified person, there was a 2015 change, and that change was um, one who it changed from one who has skills and knowledge to one who has demonstrated the skills and knowledge. Now, the reason that that was important and the reason I left it in there is because it's important now that you guys within your facilities have some way to audit your team, making sure that you're in the field auditing that and recording that um, for audit purposes, that type of thing. So, so that was a change in 2015. Now the 18 change is that the qualified person actually re can reduce the risk rather than avoid the hazards after identifying the hazards. And if you think about it, these are the experts, right? These are the qualified electrical workers. And as long as they're working within your written electrical safety policy, um, then they should be able to reduce the risk um, rather than avoid the hazard, right, after, um, after identifying the hazard. So it's allowing them to do their job more or less, and I guess that's kind of the big change there. Dangerous condition replaced with as a source of possible injury or, or damage or health or damage to health, sorry, for an arc flash hazard. And you can see a couple more there. The one I wanted to talk about is at the bottom, second to be burned. This was changed to at which point or at point which incident energy equals 1.2 cal per centimeter squared. So if you went back to that 1.2 cal centimeter statistic we covered earlier, that's when someone can receive that second degree burn. So it's not going to come in and say second degree burn anymore. It's just going to say at which or at point which incident energy equals 1.2 cal per centimeter squared. And a lot of things actually start there now. And, and one of those is PPE, which we'll talk about. All right, so last slide here on new terms. You've got the electrical safety program, documented system consisting of electrical safety principles. I think we're all pretty familiar with what an electrical safety program is. We work with a lot of customers that have a program, but they just may need to knock the dust off and update it to 2015, 2018 edition. And then there's other standards as well that you want to make sure you're building in. And we can always help with that um, if that's something that you need assistance with. Available fault current, the amount of current delivered at a point on the system during a short circuit condition. 
Uh, working distance also changed. That's the measurement. Um, now it's uh, the measurement between face, chest, and the arc source. Fault current, second from the bottom, the largest amount of current capable of being delivered at a point on the system during a short circuit condition. Um, and at the bottom, one of the things NFPA 70 2018 really stresses is that everybody in, in all the facilities that we work in, we've got to make sure that we're addressing the potential for human error. So one of the things NFPA 70E did was they added an NXQ, and it's called the Human Performance and Workplace Electrical Safety. Um, and, and really, at the end of the day, it is a, it is a helpful tool to assist us with addressing the potential for human error within our facilities. All right, so we'll continue here on the updates here. Um, now, the way I've done this here is I've, I've got articles. So we'll start at the top, and we'll kind of just move down. Um, so Article 105, which is really the application of safety-related work practices and procedures, they had a couple of changes, maybe tweaks, in the 18 edition. Um, and, and one of those really was clearly stating what's the employer responsibility and also clearly stating what's the employee responsibility. So as you can see here, I kind of highlighted some of the areas that changed. Um, but the new text really requires that safety-related work practices and procedures required by this standard shall be established, documented, and implemented by the employer. So what's that really emphasizing at the end of the day? Written electrical safety program. Because how can you hold your folks accountable to doing the work properly if that isn't in place and being enforced, right? Um, now, if you look down at the employee responsibility, uh, the new text requires the employee to comply with the safety-related work practices and procedures. So really what that's saying is that the employee must follow that written electrical safety program, right? Um, you know, and I think we talked about this before, but, you know, addition, you know the new addition emphasizes, and, and it really takes the time to do this, that working or, or that eliminating all the hazards shall be the first priority. So if that means that you need to completely de-energize, that is always the uh, best and most practical way, or not practical, but the, always the best way to stay safe. It may not be the most practical way, so you might have to work around some things, but hazard, elim hazard elimination must be the number one priority. Okay, so we'll continue. Here's Article 120. Now, when we get into Article 120, I know a lot of folks out there have lockout tagout programs. So really, at the end of the day, Article 120 will really take the lockout tagout and, and, and it, it, it took different parts of NFPA 70 2015. It kind of blended them together to make it more, I guess, concise, maybe precise of the area that lockout tagouts contain. So some of, the, some of this uh, Article 120 will contain updates. Other will actually contain sections that have been moved in so it all kind of reads a little bit better and is maybe more in order. Um, so this is what we'll cover here over the next couple of slides. Um, but continuing with Article 120, and this is dot one. Um, so really, this, this section states, each employer shall establish, document, and implement a lockout-tagout program. I don't think anybody's shocked to see that, right? Um, and if you go to, to 120.1b, it goes really into what the employer responsibilities are. And number one, that's providing the equipment necessary to execute. Uh, number two, providing the lockout-tagout training to workers. Uh, number three, auditing the lockout-tagout uh, program. And then number four is actually auditing the execution of the lockout tagout training program. And that goes, or not training program, lockout tagout program. And that goes to a comment I made earlier. That auditing part, part that really developed in 2015's updates is something that we really want to make sure that we're doing within our sites. And most customers that I talk to are doing that already. So good to, good to know. All right, Article 120.2, the lockout tagout kind of, kind of continues here. Um, you know, and, and we'll go to here to 122 or 120.2b, where it says employee involvement. So this requires that each person who could be exposed, and that's directly or indirectly to a source of electrical energy, in, in energy shall be involved in the lockout tagout process. Um, 120.2c, and that really gets more into the procedure. A lockout tagout procedure shall be developed and suitable documentation, including up-to-date drawings and diagrams was added. I, I really like this change. I think they made this really clear. Um, you know, we work with a lot of customers. We'll complete an R clash assessment, and part of that R clash assessment is a deliverable that you'll get with new, brand new, fresh, updated one-line diagrams. That is key. I mean, it's, it's by per NFPA 70B, you've got to make sure you've got those updated every year anyway. 
But when you're doing lockout, tagout, and you're an electrician or a technician or maintenance or anyone that may be doing it, it's so, so critical to have those, those one-line diagrams up to date because it will really eliminate a lot of time and obviously help you keep safe as well. All right, so when we go into 120.3 and then .4 and .5, and I think we kind of summarize up the lockout tagout section here, um, you can see some of the changes here. So it covers the requirements of lock application, lockout tagout device, um, lockout device and tagout device. So all that's kind of covered in 120.3. 120.4 really gets, um, and I mentioned this before, where they're kind of moving sections in to kind of make everything kind of flow better. That's what they did there. So they cover the procedures. And then 120.5 really gets into verifying an electrically safe work condition. Going back to what we said earlier, got to do whatever we can to eliminate that risk, right? Um, now, by doing that, they've added two additional steps in 2018. There was always three steps, but not two additional steps. And step number four is release the stored electrical en energy. And then number five is release or, blocks, release or block stored mechanical energy. So important to make sure that we're going out and, and handling that the appropriate way per our written electrical safety programs. All right, so as we kind of shift gears, um, continuing with the updates, the uh, tables. Um, so, so we've always had the NFPA 7E tables, right? And the tables can assist you in, in being able to select the proper personal protective equipment needed for an application. Um, but there's been a lot of complications. There's been a lot of confusion in using the tables. And quite honestly, you know, a lot of professional engineers are within our business, and their opinion is if you're not a, a, a registered professional engineer or a power systems engineer or someone that's very, very familiar with doing the calculations and things like that, using the tables can be very difficult, very challenging. Um, so they always kind of recommend if you're going to use the tables, make sure you do it underneath the guidance of an electrical engineer or someone that's very familiar with, um, with, with the tables. But, um, you know, based on that confusion, what, what did actually happen was that the tables were moved to a mandatory text to assist with the PV selection. So you'll see that change in NFPA 70. And, again, it's going to be in 130.5G. Um, so so here, here's where we are. Nothing has changed from 15 to today with the 18 version. But you still have two choices to conduct that arc flash risk assessment. First, you've got the option of doing the, the tables. And as I mentioned, you really need to have some engineering supervision there, electrical engineering supervision, but that's definitely a viable option. Or secondly, you can rely on the calculation procedures. And typically that's hiring a group like us or another third-party supplier that can come in as an engineering group and complete an arc flash assessment for you. Now, by doing that, you'll get precise uh, incident energy ratings within your facility, and that's very advantageous. And here's why. For example, and you can see at the bottom there, we could go in and do an arc flash assessment at company ABC. And we may find that one piece of equipment is actually 8.3 cal, which means that they could wear a 12 cal suit, which is the face shield that's on the right side there. Now, of course, that needs to be worn with a balaclava, but um, that, that's usually much more comfortable than getting into PP category three. Because if you use the tables, it's a little bit more of a conservative approach, and it could easily put that incident energy rating of 8.3 that we found through the calculations into a PP category three by using the tables, meaning that your workers might be using the beekeeper hood that you'll see on the left. Now, there's nothing wrong with the beekeeper hood at all, but by doing the incident um, energy calculation and, and working that way, you'll get a much more accurate methodology behind um, your ratings, and potentially you'll be able to put your teams into a lot less of a uh, arc flash suit at the end of the day, which is always a nice plus. Okay, so another update that came out in the NFPA 70, and this is really nothing new to folks that have been wearing gloves for a long time, but I wanted to add some clarity to this because I don't want this to get confusing. But NFPA 70 is actually saying that, um, you know, we can, you can wear insulated rubber gloves without leather protectors, but they can only be worn without leather protectors under certain um, conditions. And those conditions are kind of broken out here. Um, so first of all, there can be no activity performed that risks cutting or damaging the glove. There, uh, the rubber insulating gloves shall be electrically retested before reuse. And right there should be your deal breaker. Because if you wear the electrical gloves or the insulating rubber gloves for one uh, application, and you complete that application, you put your gloves back in your bag, and you go to the next one, you cannot wear those gloves before you send them off to a test lab 
to have them electrically retested before reuse. Um, so it really doesn't make any sense. They've got they pulled this right out of ASTM. ASTM says the same thing. But for years and years, unless you're really buying these gloves as throwaway gloves for one use, and believe me, they're they're just too expensive to do that. Um, this this just doesn't make sense. So I wanted to tackle that, and make sure that there were no questions um, in regards to this. The suggested practice again is to always wear your insulated rubber gloves with leather protectors on top. All right, so continue on with the updates here. I think we just got a, a couple more slides, and then we'll kind of switch gears. Um, Arc Flash personal protective equipment, um, third-party testing. One of the things that was considered to be introduced into 70E 2018 was actually um, having having this having a third-party certification for Arc Flash garments. Now it didn't end up getting passed at the very last kind of minute type of thing. But um, what did end up getting passed, you can see it in red there, that 2008 states that your PP must conform to applicable state, federal, or local codes or standards. Now, I'm sure everyone on the line is looking at that thinking, that's great. I'm glad to see that. I'm glad NSPA stands behind it. But one of the things that could creep up on us is that if, and I'll just make up a country, right, Nigeria, if Nigeria was to say, hey, we have some standards for our flash clothing, we're going to test to that, and we're going to ship it into the United States. As long as they conform to the Nigerian standards, then it could be accepted. So I would always encourage you to make sure whatever product you're buying, if you're not sure, um, you know, ask for the test uh, documents. They can easily be provided. Uh, we provide a lot of our flash personal protective equipment, as you probably know, and we can provide those documents if ever needed. So it's always good to have those test reports as backup um, because you want to make sure you're buying the product that is intended to work the way that you're buying for the reason you're buying it. Because if you have an incident happen, then it's too late, right, if you don't have adequate product. All right, so moving along here, um, really no changes in the boundaries, but I did put that in red. Second-degree burn has been removed and replaced to at which incident energy equals 1.2 cal per centimeter squared. Now, I've said that a couple times. The reason that's so important is the second that you cross that boundary, where you're now exposed to higher than 1.2 cal per centimeter squared, that's when the flash boundary actually starts, the arc flash boundary. And that's when you actually have to wear PPE if you're going to cross that boundary. Um, no other changes in the other boundaries. You still have the restrictor post boundary. Um, and then one of the things in 2015 that was really encouraged was work permits. And people ask this quite a bit, like when do I need to make sure that I have work permits? And I would, I would say, Anytime you're working within that restrictor post boundary, you need to have that work permit. And that's per NFPA 70. Um, you've also got the limited approach boundary as well. Um, and let's see, another one of the, the updates from NFPA 70 was 130.7A. Um, and in the 2015 edition, there was really a, there was a note that stated, hey, when incident energy exceeded 40 cal per centimeter squared, greater emphasis was needed for de-energizing. So what NFPA 70 2018 did was they took that out and stated that a strong emphasis should be put on de-energizing at all times. And that's exactly what I said early on in this call. If we can ever uh, potentially de-energize, we need to make sure we do that because that is the number one and, and best way to eliminate risk. Um, I threw this down at the bottom just, just as an FYI, but you know, for, for, for a very long time, people looked at 40 cal occurrences as a, as a major, major hazard. And what we're seeing over time is that, you know, sure, they can be a major hazard. And, and look at the example of the 53 cal, you know, arc flash that we talked about earlier where the individual walked away with a second-degree burn. The suit handled itself and did exactly what it was supposed to do. Obviously, he was very lucky with that, not, not getting the blunt impact. But if you've got an instance where there's a few cycles, that could be very explosive. That's when you've got a lot of fragments and things like that coming. That's almost like a bomb. But, but typically what we see um, when these arc flashes occur, is something that could be 60 to 90 cycles, meaning that the arc flash duration is a second to a second and a half. And I know that sounds like a very short time, but it is a very long time when it comes to an arc flash. What you don't want is uh, something that's like six cycles or eight cycles. So that really can uh, make a difference when you've got something that's 40 cal and above, because that will eliminate kind of that blast effect and make it more of a flash effect. So Again, a lot of studies are being done on this. A lot of investigations are being done, research, that type of thing. Um, so there should be more information coming on that topic. Here's some examples of some arc flash labels. Um, you can see these here. So this is just a general label here. The next label here is more or less an arc flash 
that it's really saying, hey, this is dangerous. You need to make sure you de-energize because what we've come up here is an R-clash rating of 90 cal per centimeter squared. All right, so if you get into the uh, next slide here, a lot of people say, hey, so what is it that's needed for full electrical compliance? Um, well, there's, there's really four steps. You've got to have that written electrical safety program. I think we mentioned that before. That's the policies and that's the procedures. You've got to make sure you have the electrical safety training program in place. So make sure you're out there and train your folks. For NFPA 70 and nothing's changed, they say to make sure you're training your, uh, your team every three years. Now, all the customers we work with, they're typically like, well, I don't, I don't think a three years is what I want to do. Maybe I'll put some annual refreshers in place, and that's typically what we see. And we can help you do that. Um, but, uh, you know, make sure that training program is in place. Make sure that our class assessment is done. And then finally, uh, make sure that you have that proper personal protective equipment in place. All right, so, you know, why is this so important here? Um, and I put, put some slides together here. On, on some folks that have, have actually been through these arc flashes, and there's my little disclaimer, because I know we're, we're around lunchtime, so I know this can be tough to look at, but this first picture here is a picture of an individual that obviously had an arc flash. I'm sure you've probably seen this, been around for years and years, but you can see how he probably had some protection from the neck down. It was just the head up that there was no protection. You can see the arc flash actually really more or less strong on that right side of his face, but if you look closely, you'll see little specks within his cheek that is copper. So what happens is copper expands out of an, arc, out of an equipment when arc flash takes place, and copper expands at 67,000 times per second when it melts, and, and that can actually cause even more um, of an issue when this individual is in a burn center. So what this individual is going to have to do is have that, you know, surgically removed while he's in that burn center, um, adding more, you know, problems to, to his already main problem there, which is the arc flash. Um, this, next, this next picture here probably doesn't look bad. And, and by the way, I forgot to mention, most of these images that I'm sharing with you, they're available on OSHA.gov. So if you wanted to log in to OSHA's website, um, not only does it show the image, but it tells the, 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 all the details and the intricate details of what happened, what the individual might have done incorrectly, that type of thing. Um, so I would encourage you to do that, maybe for your safety meetings, that type of thing, because it can really uh, be educational for your teams. But in this instance, what we have an example of touch and step potential. It doesn't look that bad, right? But, but here's what happened. The individual made contact. Um, the energy or the current went through his arm and exited out his right foot. Now, we all know any current that passes through the heart and lungs can be very fatal. Um, it can result in a fatality just like that. But in this case, it missed his heart and lungs. So he was very, very, very fortunate that it did miss his heart and lungs. But as it exited out his right foot, the current had such, a, such an energy level, such a heat level, that it literally shredded his muscles, his tendons, his bones. He had to have that right foot amputated. Again, it doesn't look bad on the outside, but it's the inside that really, really um, was un, un, unsavable. Um, this next slide here is an arc flash, electrical flash burn arc flash, where someone wasn't wearing the insulated rubber gloves with leather protectors. Again, you know, I'm not a doctor by any means, but you're seeing black digits, a lot of swelling, probably already beginning to see a little bit of, of peeling there. That's going to be a long recovery effort for this individual. This next image, um, and I know this one is uh, from OSHA here, uh, this individual was actually in a bucket truck, and he had all of his PPE with him. He uh, had his gloves in the bucket truck. He had not put them on yet. And as he was standing, um, and he hadn't started his application, as he was standing there, he just kind of lost his balance. We all do that, right? We just kind of, you know, maybe push our weight one way or the other to kind of fix ourselves. And in this instance, what he did was he put his arm up to kind of hold his balance, um, and he ended up making contact with the high power cable above his head. So unfortunately, the um, energy went, or the current went through his body, and you can see how it took off there. And uh, most likely went through his heart and lungs, which resulted in the electrocution. So a very sad story because he had his PPE with him in, in this event. This last one is the worst, so a little heads up, um, but it tells a great story. Um, we talked about the average arc flash burn injury and someone being in uh, a burn center for up to 27 days on average. This, is, this paints that picture pretty well. You can see the individual on the, uh, or the picture on the left the picture was taken immediately after the individual was admitted to the burn center. The picture on the right was taken eight days later. Can you imagine what this person is having to go through, sitting in that burn center, 
having some very in-depth conversations in regard to we need to amputate your arm and he's probably doing everything he can and I'm sure the doctors and nurses are doing everything they can as well to save that arm. But look at the state that it is in on day eight. Things are not looking good for him at all. So this is what these folks have to deal with. This is the pain that they have to, to kind of go through when these arc flashes take place and we wouldn't wish this on our enemies. All right, so I told you I had a case study for you, and here it is. Um, this is one of the customers that we've worked with in the Boston area. And you can see over a five-year period, they really made a commitment to their electrical safety spend um, or focus. And what they did was they ended up spending the amounts that you see there for the different programs. And again, this is over a five-year period, and they ended up spending about $87,000, which is $17,500 per year if you average it out over the five-year period. The good news for them is based on that uh, commitment, they had no electrical safety recordables over that five-year span. So if you think about it, you had a company spend $17,000 and for five straight years they had, or $17,000 a year, and for five straight years they had no, no issues, which is fantastic. Now on the other hand, this is a company in Miami, uh, very, very similar facility, uh, just a little bit smaller, 15,000 square feet smaller. They didn't have an updated written electrical safety program in place. So they had one. They just had not updated it and really hadn't implemented it. Um, they had done some training, so that was good, but they had not completed that electrical assessment or that arc flash assessment. So what happened was in 2012, there was a maintenance worker assisting with an electrical application. This individual was staying inside that electrical boundary or arc flash boundary. Now, you could argue if the arc flash assessment had not been done, how would he know where the boundary was and you're exactly right he wouldn't um, and he wasn't wearing proper PPE well he didn't know what PPE to be wearing the arc flash assessment had never been done so anyway he was staying too close to the equipment inadvertent contact was made um, and he was on fire from head to toe now unfortunately for this individual he's wearing 65 35 polyester cotton blend and that is adding fuel to the fire almost because that really goes up quickly in flames I'm sure he's stopping, he's dropping, he's rolling, but it's not getting the flames out. He's got severe burn injuries. So for the next three years of his life, 2012 to 2014, he had extensive surgery, skin grafts, and therapy. Um, and then the latest updates of last year, he had still not been able to return to work. So that's number one priority, right? Making sure this individual gets back on his feet. But there's a second priority to it, and that's the cost. If you look at the overall cost to XYZ manufacturing over the five years, it was $5.8 million or $1.16 million that they took a hit for. Now, sure, there's insurance, that type of thing, but look at all the areas that insurance isn't probably going to cover. Um, you know, surgeries, therapy, loss of work wages, loss of productivity for the business. I mean, how long were they down? You know, we work with some customers who – cannot afford to go down for 30 minutes because it's hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, also the fines that were issued and then equipment costs that they had to get replaced and then unfortunately litigation. And then that goes back to saying, hey, Miss Jones was not happy. Mr. Jones didn't come back home the same way he left that morning. So that's what we're trying to avoid. All right, so I know you, you guys are probably out there looking at suppliers and I hope you guys are doing that. This is a great slide to kind of make sure that you're getting all the deliverables you need to be getting from these partners who are out there that can help you with the arc flash assessments. Um, you know, equipment evaluation is key. That must be done per NES, per NEC. An impedance report is huge. That's a catalog of all your equipment. Imagine if you ever needed to replace something, you could just refer to that catalog, save you a lot of time and effort. Um, coordination study, which will verify the settings to reduce or eliminate tripping. Um, who doesn't need that, right? The updated one lines I talked about before, um, we, we provide everything in paper and electronic formats. People really appreciate that. And then just that ongoing support. You know, once we do an arc flash assessment, we're there to help and assist with any questions you might have or any updates you might need, that type of thing. So hopefully you can find a partner or a supplier that, that can offer the same type of uh, service that's ongoing because that's key. All right, so what's next? You know, once you have those labels on, it is up to you guys to go out and, and get that right, the correct PPE. So the first and foremost you want to start with the insulated rubber gloves, and we talked about these before, but, you know, these gloves are made so you can grab a hazard. If you think about all the other safety items out there, if you fall, you've got your harness, you know, if something falls off, you, you know, maybe you got your hard hat, hard hat to, you know, take the blow, if. But in this case, we're actually grabbing a hazard. So it's important that we're always caring for our insulated rubber gloves, and one of the ways we care for those is making sure they're tested 
every six months. So once we issue a pair of insulated rubber gloves to a worker, they've got to be tested every six months. Um, and, and one of the best ways to do that is to rotate colors through. So maybe you know one six-month period is red. Um, you send those gloves off for testing, um, and then maybe you switch them out to black, and then for six months they've got black, and you send those off for testing when you switch back into reds. However you guys want to do it, but it's an easy way to visually inspect to make sure your team is in compliance. Um, always wear the leather protectors. I think we talked a little bit about that already. Um, face shields. Make sure that you're looking at these ratings. Make sure they're meeting ANSI. Make sure they're meeting ASTM. Um, you know, we, we have some great partners that we test all of our product with. And in order to pass a product, you've got to actually send 30 samples up and have those um, tested against an arc flash before you finally can get it rated, rated and get it launched into the marketplace. So there's, a, there's quite a bit of money that goes into the testing, but you know, that's important to make sure that folks you're buying product from are doing that and taking those steps. Um, and then you get into the PP categories, right? So here's an example of PP category two, where you've got the face shield, the balaclava, and the clothing all rated to PP category two. PP category three is really when we get into the beekeeper hood, and we talked about that a little bit earlier. And then you've got PP category four. Really all you're doing there is you're adding some layers potentially to the arc flash garment to make it a little bit, uh, um, uh, a little bit, I guess, more uh, able to take on higher incident energy ratings. All right, so I told you I'd talk a little bit about innovation. Um, this has been out two or three years. This is our lift front hood. So if you haven't seen this before, please reach out to us um, or some of our partners that are out there that, that actually sell it. But this is a great product. When you're outside the boundary, you can just lift that shield up. You don't even have to remove it, and it acts just as a beekeeper hood would. Um, and when you're in the boundary, obviously make sure it's down, but it does offer a lot more uh, ability to get air through, and it's anti-fogging, so a lot of nice uh, features to that product. Um, our premium lightweight garments are also something I'd recommend. If you held our old one versus our new one, it's literally two and a half pounds less, and it's much more breathable. So for a 40 cal garment, that's uh, that's a great way to go. Um, we actually have just launched a new face shield. So for years and years and years, and I've heard it many times that you know electricians or maintenance mm -hmm. folks that are working live or working within these dark areas, they cannot see the colors of the wires. It's a major issue. So. This face shield now will allow um, our, our, our customers to see those colors of the wires. And you can see it's more of a gray-based face shield. Um, so that will really help. It's anti-scratch. It's also anti-fog. So a little horsepower in the, in the face shield as well. There's nothing you need to do on that. Any face shield you order um, as of October, so two months ago, you'll start receiving these new prism shield uh, face shields. So great to know. Um, so, you know, other things that you might want to consider when you're looking at suppliers out in the marketplace besides electrical assessments is training, and we've talked about that. So make sure you have a, the right supplier there that can help your team with uh, the compliance needs for training. And there's other areas, thermography, electrical design, preventative maintenance. We talked about written electrical safety programs, mitigation, modeling, consulting, much, much more. Now, we can help with all that, and we'd be more than happy to do that. But you may already have suppliers in place that can help with that, which is great. Um, just want to make sure you know, you, you're aware that there are suppliers out there that can really do all of this, which is a nice uh, nice touch to kind of get everything done in, in, in one one full swoop. Another advantage of Salisbury is, is that full turnkey solution where we can come in and assist you with all those services we talked about and then just lead you right into the personal protective equipment as well. And the feedback from customers has been very positive in the sense that, you know, we're able to get them in compliance from A to Z uh, with, with the PPE and the services and everything that we can offer. So I think with, with that being said, I think that kind of takes me to the very end. So at this point, I can turn it over to Alan. I'm sure there might be some questions. Yes, uh, excellent work, Brian. Thank you for your excellent insights and expertise. Uh, before we start the q and I want to remind everyone of the evaluation screen we're asking you to complete. The survey should be appearing on your screen now. Your input is important because it will help us improve future webcasts. If you do not see the evaluation survey on your screen, please turn off your pop-up blocker. You may also access the survey by clicking the survey button near the lower right part of your screen. And with that, now let's get to some questions. Uh, do you need to have an arc flash assessment of a site if you contract all electrical work with the exception of, of changing light bulbs? Oh, that, that's a great question, Alan. I appreciate whoever asked that question. So 
We, we get this question quite a bit um, when customers are asking about arc flash assessments. They'll typically say something along the lines of, you know, we contract all that live work out, so it's not something that we really need to worry about. But it, but it really is, and that's a great question, because owners are inherently responsible for contractors that are on site. NFPA 7E makes that very, very clear. There's other compliances that make that very clear as well. Contractors need to understand the elements of, of all the risks that they're going to be doing. So if there's any surprises there, then that could really fall back and, uh, and harm you as an organization. So it's very important to complete that R clash assessment. What's, what's, what happens is the labels are installed, and now you're putting um, the, the compliance really on the contractors because when they walk up to that gear and there's a label there that's looking them right in the face, they know exactly what PPE they need to wear before they access that panel. Um, so there should be no surprises, and then from a liability standpoint, it's definitely the uh, smart and conservative way to go. So I, I couldn't I couldn't agree more with completing that arc flash assessment, regardless if you have contractors or not. So great question. Uh, next question: How do we know if we are subject to the 70E standard? Yeah, that's that's another great question. Really, at at the end of the day. Um, you can argue NFPA 70 is really more or less a voluntary standard, but OSHA will enforce it underneath what's called the general duty clause. And what OSHA is really going to look for is they're going to look for in your facilities PPE. So the question I would ask is, is you know, how do you know what PPE that you need um, without following, you know, the guidelines that NFPA 70 is really laid out? Um, the other thing is you've got to have that written electrical safety program in place. And NFPA 70 is really already written. It's put together. Um, so if you've got, if you have a need for an electrical safety program, you know, work with uh, NFPA 70, implement NFPA 70, um, at least you can make sure that you've got that program in place. But, but that's, that, that would be the best answer I would have is NFPA 70 um, really can help you as, as far as compliance goes um, from A to Z. Hopefully that helps answer that question. If you're located in a leased facility that houses multiple businesses, that has work areas that are intermixed with multiple common areas, who is responsible for the arc flash compliance? Yeah, so, so great question. I would, I would probably answer that similar to the way I answered the contractor question. Um, so the owners are always going to be inherently responsible for, for their facilities. Now, there are, there are some instances where, in Honeywell this way, we've got quite a few plants throughout the world, um, and we lease a lot of those properties. But the property owners in that instance wouldn't be responsible for the electrical equipment. Um, so we would be, Honeywell would be, right, because it's our facility. We're the one doing the manufacturing out of that facility, although we're just leasing it. So I guess I'd answer it this way. It depends on really where the electrical equipment falls. Um, and, and kind of the ownership of the facilities and those common areas and that type of thing, um, because at the end of the day, it's the electrical equipment that you need to be focused around. And so I would say the uh, the uh, it, it would inherently fall follow to the uh, fall to the owner of that electrical equipment or whoever is really responsible for that in regards to making sure that compliance is in place. So hopefully that that kind of assists with that question. Uh, 2012 70E had class zero. Uh, 2015 removed that class zero. Now people are confused about what PPE to wear if the hazard is not a class one, and now an old zero. Do old old zero now need label to be labeled as class one, even though they are not a class one? Would it be easier to have a class zero? Yeah, great question, Alan, and whoever asked that, I appreciate that question. So. NFPA 70 2018 does not recognize a zero. So it's really just PP category one, two, three, and four. Um, so people ask me quite a bit, like, well, what do I need to wear if, you know, I have a zero because maybe I did my arc flash assessment two years ago or whatever that might be. And the answer really is we want to make sure we're staying within the natural fibers, right? So you don't want to be walking up to something with nylon or polyester or anything like that because in the event of even a small arc flash, um, you still uh, want to make sure you're staying with the natural fibers like cottons and things like that. Um, so, so really, NFPA 70 is recognizing uh, PPE category 1, and that starts at 1.2 cal, which was one of the changes for 2018. So hopefully that helps. Anything below 1.2 cal, um, NFPA 70 is really not recognizing it, but use, just make sure you use common sense, and again, make sure those natural fibers are front and center um, in, in all of your work.
All right, thank you, everyone. Unfortunately, we have run out of time. I'm sorry we didn't get to everyone's questions, uh, but all of today's unanswered questions will be forwarded to our speaker. Once again, I hope you take the time to fill out the evaluation survey on your screen to give us your feedback. That ends today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast. I'd like to thank Brian McCauley, everyone at Honeywell Salisbury, and all of our listeners. Thank you, and have a safe day.